You can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Now, this may sound like a funny question to ask a room full of mostly adults, but I want you to raise your hand. You ready for this? You prepped? Okay. Raise your hand if you are still trying to figure out what you want to be when you grow up. Raise your hand. Okay. All right. And what's so amazing about that is in uh, my time as, as uh, a student ministry and uh, also now as a, a, a pastor of adults, I'm amazed at how often people struggle with that question of what is my calling? What am I supposed to do with my life? Rarely in the English language can one question be so loaded full of possible hope and at the same time dread, anxiety and at the same time anticipation, Potential honor and potential shame, all at the same time. Four little words. What is my calling? Now, what is most interesting in that phrase is obviously the word calling. What does this mean? Well, in our primarily economically driven society and culture, it often means what is your vocation? Think about it. Not just what you do in order to earn money, but what are you? Anytime you go up and you introduce somebody, the first question we always ask is, what is your name? usually followed by, what do you do? Our culture assigns vocation with identity. It's as, if, it's as if there was this cosmic slot that was individually molded for each one of us. My slot was taller than yours, right? But it's individually molded, almost as if it were a soulmate of careers, if you will. And we simply need to find it to find true fulfillment. In Christian circles, there is an added layer of expectation, isn't there? Not only do I need to have my vocation in the world, but boy, it would be really cool if my vocation could be in the church. Am I supposed to be a pastor, a worship leader, a missionary? What is my spiritual vocation? And if a person finds that they have one of those, we lift them up as special in the church. And if I don't seem to be called to one of those, what does that mean about me? It's loaded. So much angst for four little words. What is my calling? As followers of Christ, each one of us has been given a calling, but it is not the job that we do. This calling is not given for our occupation, and the calling is not even primarily used with regard to how we use our individual gifts within the church. We're going to cover that a ton over the next couple of weeks, talking about the diversity within the church and how the Lord makes one body out of many diverse members who have different giftings according to their personalities and who they are. But the calling we're going to talk about today is something far greater. This morning, Paul will show us that our calling is first and foremost to unity with Christ. And secondly, our calling is to unity with his people. The title for today, if you want to write it down, if you're taking notes, is that we are called to unity. Now you might be thinking, Hans, really? You've been talking about unity a lot. But yeah, if you look at chapter 4, you're going to see why I'm talking about it yet again today. As we reviewed a couple of weeks ago, Paul spends the first half of the letter, chapters 1 through 3, talking about one big topic. We talked about it as the word orthodoxy. Everybody say orthodoxy. orthodoxy. It's right doctrine or right thought about God. And then chapters 4 through 6, he's going to move into orthopraxy. Everybody say orthopraxy. orthopraxy. Right practice or right conduct. We have to have right theology in order to move into that. And he's going to use for these first six verses of chapter four that we're going to look at today, this idea of calling, and he's going to hammer it home in a way that almost seems like he's beating us over the head with it. I'll show you what I mean in a second. 
But for right now, let's read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, before we dive in and unpack these six verses, let's first get some background for why Paul is issuing this call. First thing we're going to look at is the surrounding need for unity. We're going to look at the context of why this letter is being written and what's going on in the church at this time. Last week, we looked at Acts chapter 2, didn't we? This beautiful picture of this church that just basically happens. 3,000 people get baptized on one day. The apostles are super stoked. It is the best growth program that's ever occurred in the history of the church. People are giving their lives in order to follow Jesus. People are starting to get together from house to house, and their unity in the Spirit is apparent as they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. Oh, my We look at that and we go, what a beautiful church. How many of you last week went, man, if only the church today could be like that? Anybody? I read that and I think, if only. Now we can be very easily tempted to walk away from that kind of an idea and think, man, why isn't today's church like that? But think with me for a moment of why Paul is needing here in chapter 4 of Ephesians to issue a call. If it were actually happening, he wouldn't need to call the church to it. We often have a tendency to take the Bible and to to turn it into a way that we want to see it. And often we do this, for example, with the Old Testament. We take a book like Judges and we take the people out of it and we mold them into these heroes and we make VeggieTale movies about them and we tell our children to be like them. But the reality is, is if you've ever read through the Old Testament, you realize that most of the main characters are degenerates that God used in spite of themselves. Really, go read it. These people were insane. And yet God used them in spite of themselves. Now we do the same thing with the New Testament. We read it and we seemingly glorify the early church. And we say, man, it was so perfect back then, if only. But if you look at the letters as a whole that Paul wrote and Peter wrote and James wrote, they show us almost immediately that there was massive conflict and brokenness right from the start in the church. For example, look at the end of Acts chapter 4. Turn there with me. Go back in your Bible to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And we're going to see, again, this beautiful picture of how the early church was acting, but in the midst of that, we're going to see one of the ugliest circumstances that's in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Give me an amen if you're there. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Mm, That sounds good, doesn't it? And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, right? They were probably uh, sharing pressure washers left and right. (laughs) And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. 
The church was massive in that time because all the folks who had come to Jerusalem in order to worship on the Feast of Pentecost had stayed. They thought Jesus was coming back in days or weeks, and so they're sitting with anticipation, leaving their jobs at home. They have no money. And so the church rallies to put together money and benevolence to pay for people to live in Jerusalem. It says, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So you have this beautiful picture of generosity, this beautiful picture of unity, and everyone laying down their lives for each other. But then in direct contrast to this, the author Luke shares another story with us. Look at chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. They did the exact same thing. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, all sense of optimism is out the window for these people. They literally were standing in a corner figuring out how they can take, get one over on the church. Hey, let's just do this. Let's, let's kind of you know, work this. Maybe let's move this account around and we're going to be good. And the whole reason they were doing it, we can surmise, is because they wanted to be seen as generous. They wanted to be seen as godly. And so they laid only part of it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, immediately he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your own disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Now, pause for a second here, guys. He comes before who? Peter and the apostles. Is Peter God? Are the apostles God? He lays it at the feet of who? Peter and the apostles. He speaks and lies to Peter and the apostles. Is Peter God? Are the apostles God? Then why does Peter say, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Why have you done this to God? He's done it to the church. Hans, are you saying the church is God? Absolutely not. Just look around. (laughs) But we have to recognize what's going on here. Let's keep going. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in. How's it going, guys? not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, hey, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Peter, that's manipulative. No, he's trying to discern her heart. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test who? The apostles, the church? No, the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. That is a church discipline program, if I've ever seen one. <laughs> Can you even imagine? Right? Wow, don't join the Jerusalem church. You mess up, you're dead. Right? But was it just a simple mess up? No, it was active. This is horrific, isn't it? These supposed disciples that were within the church, guys, these were members of the body. They weren't being forced to give up anything 
but yet they acted as people pleasers and sold their property only to keep a part of it back. And we can look at this and say, well, it's because they didn't give everything. That's not what's happening here, guys. Go back and read Acts chapter 2. They were meeting from house to house. That means many of the, the, the believers kept their houses. They didn't sell everything and move under the Burnside Bridge. They didn't sell any, any, everything and move to Cambodia. They kept their houses and practiced fellowship in them. So the problem is not that they didn't sell everything and give it all. It's that they operate in a way that was outside of what the community of faith was to be. And this is right off the bat. Notice with me something very specific. I already mentioned it to you. Notice that he says to both Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira, you don't lie to men, but you lie to the Spirit. Luke makes very clear here that in treating the body of Christ in a certain way, they are actually treating the Spirit of God that same way. Why? Well, because where does the Spirit of God reside, folks? In the church. That's what we've learned in Ephesians, isn't it? D.G. Peterson, in his commentary on Acts, says this, Ananias and Sapphira disregarded the presence of God in the Christian community, the sacredness of that fellowship in God's eyes, and the relational aspect of their sin. They failed to discern that a deliberate act of deceit against the church was a sin against the Lord of the church. When Ananias lied to Peter and the church, it was a sin against the spirit who creates, fills, and sustains the church. Their deception of the community was actually a challenge to the spirit of the Lord who is the source of the church's life and holiness. Wow, that's heavy. And this is why Paul in Ephesians 4 urges the saints to stay within the unity of the Spirit. It is a shorthand way for saying, be unified with God, and in so being unified, be unified with his people. They go together. You cannot separate them. There is no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. It does not exist in the Bible. And brokenness in the church wasn't just a problem in Acts 5, though. Let's think through some of the themes that go across the letters of Paul and see what it was he was encountering as he planted churches throughout the Roman Empire. Think with me for a second. A cursory look at Romans, it shows that the Jews and the Gentiles were beating up on each other and trying to force each other out of the church. And they couldn't get along because of those ethnic divides. And so what is Paul writing? He's saying, guys, you got to remember who God is. Chapters 1 through 11. And then the rest of the book is, and act like you know who God is. And the end of the book, what does he say? He says, I want to do this because I want to come to you and use you as a launching off point to take the gospel to Spain. But he knows that with an immature church, he can't do that. He can't use it as a base. He knew he had to fix that before evangelism could effectively happen outside of that church. So here's a few different things that come out of Romans. Romans 15, 5 through 6, for example. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, this isn't just a happy little benediction he gives. This is him begging them to operate out of the theology of a unified triune God. Romans 16, 17 through 19 says this, I appeal to you, brothers. That word is like, please, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. 
And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. You can't pull the wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil out of that. He's saying, guys, recognize that there are wolves that want to come in and devour you and pull you out and cause division. There was something massive going on in Rome. First and second Corinthians, it would take me far too long to detail all the problems that were happening. That church, those two letters should be first hot mess and second hot mess. Those should be the names of those books, right? There was sexual immorality of a kind that wasn't even named among pagans, lack of dealing with sin, division within the church, massive anger and accusations towards Paul. Have you ever read 2 Corinthians? The book is full of Paul recounting back to the Corinthian church all the smack that they're talking about him behind his back. Look at this. For they say, this is Paul speaking about him and his letters, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. He was a short little guy, tradition says, with a high-pitched voice and a crooked nose, and his eyes watered, and he kind of was nasally when he talked. That's what tradition says. Now, we don't know if that tradition was written by the people who were talking smack about him. I can't even imagine what I'd appear, uh, you know, like in letters, right? But they say this about him. His speech is of no account. Let such a person understand, Paul says, that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. In other words, bring it. This is a pastor? He sounds harsh. He sounds abusive. No, he's saying there is no such thing as division in the church. We're going to deal with it. Look at 2 Corinthians 12, 15 through 17. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less, Paul says? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say. They were calling him manipulative. And got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? He's saying, guys, I've poured out my life for you. Why on earth would you think that I'm trying to manipulate you and harm you? And so in the midst of this, what does he do in these two letters with all this garbage going on in the church at Corinth? He calls them to unity. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. In our world of paranoia, people don't like the idea of people who think similarly. We want to get Teachers who are itching ears will like that agree with us. But see, this is what the church is called to, to choose to agree and not let divisions happen. I could go on and on. Galatians, he's fighting against Judaizers who are telling the Christians they need to still practice Mosaic law and practice circumcision. And Paul corrects them so harshly that he actually says to those Judaizers, you should be neutered. Go check it out for yourself. In Colossians, hyper-spiritual Gnostics were coming in and saying there was a special knowledge causing division among the body, and Paul was trying to deal with it. In Thessalonica, some were causing division, saying that the resurrection had already come. In 2 Thessalonians, members of the church were taking advantage of one another and the benevolence by saying they needed generosity, but were simply slacking and being bad stewards of money. In Philippians, there's a largely a commendation, but even there, what does Paul say? He says, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Synecdoche, right? These are two women, to agree in the Lord. There was literally a cat fight happening in the middle of Philippi. 
Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Do you think Paul was trying to get the church to agree and to walk without division? It's all across the letters. And here at Ephesus, we have possibly the worst situation. Remember that Timothy was sent to be a young pastor in the midst of that church. And Paul's counseling Timothy, a young pastor, into how to deal with things. Look at some of the things he says in 1 Timothy. He says this to Timothy, This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Look at 2 Timothy 1.15. You are aware, Paul says to Timothy, all who are in Asia. Asia is a pretty big place, right? Here he's talking about Asia Minor, Turkey. He's saying everybody in all those churches did what? Turned away from me. Among whom are, I can never pronounce that first name, so you guys go ahead and try, and Hermogenes, okay? Does this seem like an idyllic early church? Does this seem like a church where we, oh man, if only we could have the good old days? Not at all. And so poor Paul, in the middle of this, towards the end of his life, writes not to Timothy, the the pastor of the church at Ephesus, but to the church at Ephesus, knowing of the strife. And what does he say to them? Guys, I'm calling you to unity. Turn back and look at Ephesians chapter 4 with me. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What we see here, if you're taking down notes, you can write down, is the call to unity. Very simply, that's what this whole section is about, the call to unity in the body of Christ. Now, Paul's wording here reminds me of being a parent or a teacher or a Sunday school teacher, Uh, anyone who's worked with kids. You know those days where you are trying almost anything. For some reason, it's either a full moon or something bad has happened, and you're trying as hard as you can to get your children to obey, right? You're trying reward systems. You're trying chore charts. You're trying punishments. You're trying discipline. You're even throwing out, you know, you're going to get a spanking. You're trying everything and nothing is working. And you find yourself on bended knee begging this small human being, please, for the love that all, of all that is holy, please just obey. Anybody ever have those days? Yeah. Okay. All of you parents who don't have your hands raised are lying. That happens all the time, right? And sometimes it's not because the child is being disobedient. It's just because things are not happening right. So Paul is doing this where he's saying, guys, I urge you, I beg you, I passionately entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you say you have answered. Now, really quickly, in the Greek language, sentences do not follow a linear structure like they do in English. They don't have the word order isn't what tells you what is a subject and what is an object and those kind of things. What they use is they use the end of words, and so they can mix up the words any way they want. It still means the same thing. And verse 1 begins, if you were to look at the Greek, with the word parakalo, okay, which means I urge. And so the wooden translation in Greek would be this. 
I urge, therefore, not I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, but I urge you, therefore. Because of the plan of God, the work of God, the goodness of God, Paul is calling the saints at Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. I think about this a little bit from my basketball life, right? I was the guy who wanted to be the point guard. And so when I would post up, it was like this, right? Now I'm six foot ten. When I post up, I'm pretty big. And I can't tell you the number of coaches who would scream from the bench, play your size, right? What did they mean by that? They meant, remember who you are. You're not Spud Webb. You're not a five foot six point guard. You're a six foot ten dude. And then I'd remember and I'd get bigger. Same thing here. Paul is saying, guys, remember who you are. Your children, the most high God who is unified and triune. He's the one who's unified. You are his kids. Act like it. And just to be a bit over the top, what he does is he starts with parakalo, which which at the root is the word or is the verb to call. And then he uses the same word, kaleo, to continue it on. And so he could translate it this, and this is a bit sarcastic, but this is basically what he says. Church, I am calling you to your calling to which God has called you. He's trying to hammer it home. It's not about you. It's about the calling to which you've been called. Now, this is not the first time Paul uses this language. In chapter 1, he says, go ahead and go there. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18, he says he wants and he prays that their their eyes of your hearts would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? If you remember two weeks ago, What he's talking about there is he's saying, guys, remember everything God has done. Chapter 1, it talks about Jesus being set up as king and forgiving us our sins by his work on the cross. And chapter 2 is he pulled us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. We have been saved by grace. And the end of chapter 2 is that he's taking Jews and Gentiles and joining them together in unity as one new body because of the work of this king. And all of this is this work that we should understand, this hope, this expectation, that one day Jesus Christ will rule and reign in all the universe. And those that are his will be his citizens, and those who are not will be cast out. He says, remember this hope to which you've been called. And so when we put it all together, we've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and welcomed into the inaugurated kingdom of light. How often do we forget that, church? How often do you wake up in the morning and hit the buzzer and go in the shower and eat your food and get to work and you do your work, especially some of you have super dramatic jobs, DHS, nursing, uh, teaching, stay-at-home moms. You guys need trauma-enforced care, man, right? (laughs) All across the board and then you get done and you crash out in front of Netflix because you need like one minute to relax after you put the kids to bed and do your family worship and then you crawl into bed and you lay down and you go, oh, wait, Jesus is king, (laughs) right? How many of you feel like that some days? We forget that this is the very hope to which we've been called, all because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. His death, his resurrection, his enthronement. Our sin and rebellion against God aligned us with the rebellious kingdom of darkness, led by the enemy of Christ himself, Satan. In order for the power of that alliance to be broken, Christ, preexistent with God the Father, came in the flesh, proclaimed the word that God was going to be victorious, And through his deeds showed what the kingdom would be like. He proclaimed the good news that the reign of the kingdom of darkness was coming to an end. 
And he then died in our place on the cross, paying the price for our allegiance to the kingdom of darkness. Rising again three days later, he proved that sin and death had no power whatsoever. And to accept this means that we are crucified with Christ. That our connection, our allegiance to that kingdom of darkness is destroyed. And by acknowledging that we are Christ's and repenting from our allegiance to that kingdom and instead embracing Jesus as Lord and following his rule, we're justified before God. We're forgiven of our sins and we're welcomed into his kingdom. And so our mission then becomes to go throughout the world to proclaim this news. But how do we do it without unity, Paul says? We as American Christians, we go easy. One at a time, isolated, autonomous, we go out and we preach the gospel of Jesus. How do we preach a gospel of reconciliation without being reconciled ourselves, is his point. Think about what John read to us in John, 1 John chapter 1. Let's read it again very slowly. Just the first four verses. Look with me at the board. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Who's that? Who's the word of life? Jesus. Jesus. Okay. You guys would have done well in Sunday school. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That's preaching Jesus, right? Awesome. Anybody can do that, alone or together. Then, they, then he says, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that, what? You too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Their evangelism program wasn't, hey, stranger, look at Jesus over there. Their evangelism program was, come follow us, we're following Jesus. Come have fellowship with us as we have fellowship with Jesus. Church, what are we calling people to when we evangelize? Repentance, that's good, that's needed. Knowing the gospel, that's good, that's needed. But when you read the word, they're always calling them into fellowship. Always calling them into the church. Because the church is the bride of Christ and has fellowship with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. So when Paul says that we are called, he is referring not only to our call to belong to Christ. Without that, there is no connection to the church. And to enter into that relationship. But he's also referring to our call to belong to one another in relationship. And to participate within this inaugurated kingdom that has been established. This is what Paul uses as the idea of calling throughout his letters. There's far too many to give you. And I've already thrown a ton of scripture at you today. But I'm going to take you through a few more here just as a sample of how Paul uses this word calling or called throughout his letters. Romans chapter 1. He speaks to the saints in his greeting. He says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. The word saints is ones made holy. Okay? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Called relationship with God and called to holiness within the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into what? The fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Peter jumps in in 1 Peter chapter 2, and he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, into his marvelous light. I'll give you one more here. 1 Thessalonians. 
We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. See how this is continued in most of Paul's letters? We're called to Jesus, and therefore we are also called to the body of Christ. You can't separate the two. The very word church in Greek means called out ones. Ekklesia comes from two words. It comes from ek, or ex, and kaleo, called out ones. How often do we think of ourselves as the called out ones? I'm a Christian. What does that mean? It means you're a called out one. What are you called out of? The kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. You're called out of the culture we exist in into the culture of Jesus. You're called out of the law of what our world tells you into the law of Jesus, the law of liberty and the law of freedom. And so Paul, in order to help them understand what this means in greater detail, detail, gives them very specific things that they need to focus on. Look at chapter uh, 4, verses, or verse 2 there in Ephesians with me. He says, answer the call to which you've been called with all humility. That's the first thing. If you're writing down notes, write down humility. The first thing is humility. In the United States, humility is don't ever think about yourself at all. That's true humility. But as we'll see as we run into chapter 4, it's actually thinking rightly about yourself. It's not false humility. It's thinking rightly about yourself within relationship to God and within his body. Which means then you will also think rightly of others in the body as well. It means not having an elevated sense of yourself. That's the word arrogance. Secondly, he says, you need to walk with gentleness. Gentleness. Having a kind and soft temperament. But I don't know about you guys. You guys have all read the Bible, right? Is God always gentle with his people? Is Paul always gentle with what he says? No, it means let that gentleness match what's happening. Guys, as a good father, when I see one of my children harm another one of my children, guess what I do? I don't go to them gently. I go to them with a firm discipline. I don't beat them. I don't abuse them. But I let them know this is not okay. And you can still do that in a sense of gentleness, but you also can be very firm. It doesn't just mean nice. Third, he says, with patience. Now, patience is that long-suffering which makes allowance for others' shortcomings and endures wrong rather than flying into a rage or desiring vengeance or immediately cutting off relationship. It endures in the midst of other shortcomings. And this makes sense given the next statement where he says, bearing with one another in love. Do you ever have to bear with somebody? That doesn't necessarily mean the relationship's going well, does it? Right? You know, when you go to the DMV, sorry if anybody works for DMV, you go to the DMV, you got to bear with the DMV, right? Right? Yeah? Bearing is not comfortable. And lastly, he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Hey, now think about any of the kids in our church, right? Um, well, last night, for example, the kids, um, they uh, came to the office to have dinner with me because I was still working on the teaching and they come in and they've got uh, the big thing of red vines that Kelly bought me the other day, um, stress eating. And so I, you know, take the, the red vines and I'm eating them and, and Kara says to me, she goes, Daddy, I'm hungry for a red vine. And I said, okay, honey, you can have one after dinner. And she goes, oh, I'm so excited for a red vine. That's eager. That's eager. 
right? If she was like, okay, whatevs, right? That's the opposite of eager. So to be eager for the unity, to maintain the unity of the spirit, what does that mean? It means that you are acting constantly, consistently with zeal to bring about this state of oneness, to bring about the state of being of the same mind and heart, all in connection with God's Holy Spirit. And not only are these qualities opposed to our flesh, but they're also opposed to what the world calls us to all day long. If you just take the opposite, this is the list. Arrogance, harshness, isolation, selfishness, and immediate gratification. What did I just list off? Everything from politics to marketing that our world runs on. So to grow in the spirit-led qualities, Paul talks about not only having the spirit in our midst, but also urging the body because it takes constant effort on our part to make these things habit. But Paul knows that effort alone won't be enough. He knows that we can't do it on our own. And so what does he do? Well, like the prayer he had in chapter 3 here, he points the eyes of the Ephesians to the source of unity. This is the last major point I got for you, the source of unity. He doesn't stop there and move straight into the rest of chapter 4, talking about how we're to live as a unified body, how we're to live as people who have followed the call of Christ. He instead stops and points their eyes to the most important part of this passage, in my opinion. Remember at the end of chapter 3, Patrick taught us through it, that Paul was on his knees praying to God that the saints in Ephesus would understand the love of Christ. He knew that without understanding the love of Christ, there was no way that they could walk in this new life. They needed to experience it at such a level that it would propel them forward in their love for one another so that they might be unified. And Paul knew that without the power and ability of the Holy Spirit within them, they would continue to splinter and operate in disunity. So here, what does he do? He points their eyes to the source of unity. As soon as he says, you guys need to be eager to maintain the unity of the church, look at what he says in verse 4. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, to get a little bit of the emphasis here, recognize that in the Greek, there is, is not there. Those words aren't there in the Greek. He literally says, you guys need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And then he says, one body. One body. Not one splintered, one body. Why? Because there is one Spirit that dwells in that one body. Just as you were called to the one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. What I want to submit to you is that Paul wasn't just coming up with this on his own. As a Jewish Pharisee, he was intimately acquainted with the Hebrew Scriptures, and I believe that Paul is hearkening back to the very same call that God had upon the people of Israel. If you look at what Jews still today will recite almost daily, maybe even multiple times a day, the great Shema, the great hear, the great command, is from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel. And remember, hear in the, in the Hebrew is always hear and obey. There is no hearing if there's not obedience. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is, what's that word? One. one. Adonai Chad. The Lord is one. Now that speaks very clearly here that there is no other God. 
Yahweh is the only God. But it also speaks to the fact that he is whole. And as Revelation continues on throughout Scripture, we see that even though we follow a triune God, that there is Yahweh, the Father, Jesus, his Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are unified as one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And from that place in Deuteronomy 6, he then rolls out tons of commandments about how to live. All the way up to that point, there's a ton of orthodoxy. But after that, he starts teaching them in what? Orthopraxy. This is the start of the command and the covenant, and this is how I'm going to roll it out to you. And Paul, I would submit to you, is doing the same thing here in Ephesians. We're going to see as we roll through the rest of this chapter how Paul's pulling from Zechariah, and he's speaking of the new covenant and how the people are to be the new covenant people of God. Why? Because in chapter 2, he said, you guys are the temple. We're creating a whole new religion here, he says. You're the temple in which the Spirit of God dwells. The church is a very clear picture of what it is to be the new covenant community of God. And the great Shema initiates the call to be God's special people unified with Yahweh. And it does so off of the basis that God is one. Paul reminds the Ephesians that the only reason and the only way that they can be other, the otherworldly community of God is if they recognize that their God that they follow is himself one. Seven times he speaks of the unity of God and the unity of his people. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father God. By joining together in unity with God's church, we collectively have the spirit dwelling among us and in each one of us. And so therefore we are united under the watchful eye of our one Father God from whom all of us have been named. Guys, if we take the weight of this truth and the miraculous nature of what God has done and is doing through his gospel of reconciliation, it must change the way we live. Look back with me at Ephesians chapter 1 really quickly. Look at what the entire purpose of what God is doing through Christ. Chapter 1 verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The church is to be a precursor, a preview of that ultimate unity. I quoted Robert Mounts to you a couple weeks ago. He said very clearly, we become like that which dominates our thoughts and affections. And so Paul is directing our thoughts and affections to the perfectly unified triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and calling us to walk in a way of mutual submission to him and mutual submission to one another. Brothers and sisters, I must tell you that I am loving what I'm seeing in this church. For those of you that weren't uh, at the membership meeting, there was almost completely unanimous movement of the Spirit in driving forward this church based off of your Spirit-led decisions. I was at church, or at at church, (laughs) at seminary, Freudian slip, at seminary the other day, and I was talking to one of my uh, cohort members who they're having a ton of problems in their church, and they said, hey, how's everything going at your church? I know you've been going through some stuff, and I said, man, I can't even tell you how amazing it was to stand amongst people in almost perfect unity. It was beautiful. I started tearing up when I was telling him. 
the unity that you guys are striving after, the unity that you are desiring, eager to maintain it as a witness to the people around us, it does my heart good. As I hear about what's going on in your community groups, as I hear about you caring for each other, I just want to say, well done. It is so hard to maintain the unity of the Spirit in a world that wants to rip it apart, with an enemy that wants to wiggle his way in and divide. And I am so thankful that I get to be a brother in the midst of this church. Well done. A unity of people that are on the same mission gives glory to Christ in a way that nothing else in this world can testify. Now, one might object, though. You might say, well, this is all well and good, but if this were realistic, Hans, why is there so much division in the early church? Why is there so much division in the church today? I think we can figure out why division still exists even though the Holy Spirit sits in the middle of the church. All we have to do to think about division is look back to the first division. You guys remember where that happened? The Garden of Eden. The one and only good creator God had created all things and what he created, he designated it as good. He said that he created it and it was good. Not a little bit good, good. And the right order of creation was for a good God to provide good things and for his creation to obey him and follow his designation of what is good and what is evil. It's amazing when my kids try and correct me when I tell them something is evil and they're like, no, it's not really. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I get it now. Yeah, that's what I'm like. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. Thank you for giving me kids so I can recognize how sinful I am, right? Because we want to make up what is good and evil on our own. But this was the perfect relationship and then Satan inserted one small thought. Take a look at Genesis 3 on the screen there. He said, hey, you can't really trust God. Think for yourself. Don't listen to God. Don't listen to anybody else. You decide what is right for you. He probably showed her a sign that said, stay true to yourself. And so what happens when the woman saw that the tree was good for food? Is it by God's designation? No, God was like, stay away from it. It's terrible. You don't want to touch it. But when she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. All that had to happen was Satan had to throw out the idea, don't trust God, don't trust anyone else. Decide for yourself. Genesis is full of God saying to mankind, please don't, that will kill you, and mankind deciding for ourselves what is the best solution. And guys, what did that lead to in the garden? Division and destruction. Why is the church still divided and in strife? Because we're all still human. The fullness of the unity of the kingdom has not come because Christ is not physically ruling and reigning yet. We haven't been fully resurrected to new bodies. And these old brains, man, they have habits that die hard. Rather than fully submitting to God through his word and to one another, we individually reserve the right to be the source of truth. We lob on to it the spiritual trump card of the spirit is leading me to or God told me to when we have no backing in scripture and no one else in the body agrees with us. This is how the enemy tricks us. And by so doing, the enemy gets a foothold within the body of Christ. Remember Ananias and Sapphira from Acts 5? They're a great, perfect New Testament picture of Adam and Eve. Except they were met with the immediate judgment and death that didn't quite happen immediately in the garden. The point wasn't the amount of money they gave or not. It was the spirit of selfishness behind it. It was not caring about how their actions affected anyone else. 
Peter would have rather they kept their money than try to operate within the spirit-filled community by their own self-interest. When we are called into Christ's reign and kingdom, we submit ourselves to his word and his people. We realize that to do so is to submit ourselves to God himself. The two can't be separated. Too often, we're quick as Christians to say that we're being personally led by the Spirit because our emotions and feelings dictate what we do. We have made ourselves the source of truth. How often have you opened your Bible and put your finger there as if the Bible were a magic eight ball or a magic incantation? How often have you had brothers or sisters go, "Mm, I'm not so sure. Nope, Spirit's leading me to. So the Spirit in you is different from the Spirit in them. A house divided against itself cannot stand. How do we know when the Spirit of God is leading? It's when the Holy Spirit within my brother and sister agrees with the Holy Spirit within me to the glory of God and under the authority of the inspired word. When we are unified in one body by one spirit under the authority of one Lord, that is when the Spirit is leading you. Otherwise, be careful because you may be using the name of the Holy Spirit in vain. What does this look like in the church? Well, Acts gives us a beautiful picture. Turn with me to Acts 15. This is the last place I'll turn you. Acts 15. And look, starting in verse 23 there. Judaizers had come into the church telling Gentiles that they had to follow the ceremonial Mosaic law. And in other words, they had to be circumcised. And so the council of apostles and disciples, they met in Jerusalem to decide what to tell the Gentile churches. And if you look at 15.7 really quick there, um, it says this. It says, and after there had been much debate, right? It's kind of like, have you ever heard a a person from Britain curse? It always sounds better than when Americans curse, right? It's almost got this like niceness to it. Well, that word there, debate, it's not a nice word. This was heatly, uh, hotly, uh, there was dissension, basically. I can't talk. There's dissension in the midst of the body. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, you can imagine this is like a town hall between Republicans and Democrats, man. And so there's debate and conflict. Oh, the spirit must not be among them. No, guys, that's why the word is full of various conflict resolution. Because look at what happens in verse 23. Or starting in verse 22, sorry. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. That's all the number. The whole church all the members, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, Guys, that didn't mean they all piled into a Honda, okay? I know, it's a bad pastor pun, but it's true. It means they came to one agreement. To choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. How could they be assured that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us? 
Because the church came to one accord. Because the church was unified. There was dissension and division and debate and conflict. And yet, by the Spirit of God, they all said, no, we got to do what is right for the body. I wonder if God would have any of us in this room adjust our view of the leading of the Spirit this morning so that the body of Christ plays into it in a far greater capacity than our individualistic, autonomous American viewpoints would allow. Well, Hans, I I don't want to give myself up to someone else. That's not what Christ is calling me to do, really. Really. This surrendering of our personal autonomy for the glory of God in the midst of the greater body will, in and of itself, sanctify us and change us more and more individually and corporately into the image of God. How so? Well, guys, the whole point of sanctification is to grow into the image of the triune God we serve, isn't it? Well, how important is unity to the Father? So much so that he was willing to send his only beloved Son to die for it, to die in our place so that there would be a way for the Father to call us into his family as sons and daughters. How important was unity to the Son? So much so that he willingly gave his life on the cross and endured ridicule, abuse, abandonment, all so that we might be called into his kingdom as his citizens and his friends. How important is unity to the Spirit? So much so that he inspired Paul to write the words before us. And he works constantly within our hearts and minds to free us from the selfishness of our flesh and the distancing we do from one another so that we might take up the mantle of selfless unity with one another. Church, today our application is simplistic in content, yet so difficult to carry out. We must ask ourselves, do we have the same desire for unity amongst Jesus' body that he does? Do we have a desire that we are willing to surrender all and lay down our lives, even our own self-protection and autonomy? If not, then what fear or reasoning, we must ask ourselves, what fear or reasoning must I put to death to say that I too am eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Church, it can be so scary to lay down our self-protection for the sake of unity. It can be almost traumatizing. Our immediate response is, but Hans, what happens if I give myself over to someone else and they crucify me for it? Well, remember that you're in good company. You follow a God that did just that and he called you to follow him. When Christ calls a man, Bonhoeffer said, he bids him come and die. P.T. O'Brien says this. He says, since the church has been designed by God to be the masterpiece of his goodness and the pattern on which the reconciled universe of the future will be modeled, believers are expected to live in a manner consistent with this divine purpose. To keep this unity must mean to maintain it visibly. The unity of the Spirit is real. It must be transparently evident. And believers have a responsibility before God to make sure that this is so. To live in a manner which mars the unity of the Spirit is to do so despite the gracious reconciling work of Christ. 
It is tantamount to saying that his sacrificial death by which relationships with God and others have been restored, along with the resulting freedom of access to the Father, that they are of no real consequence to us. One Father, one Lord, one Spirit, dwelling in one body, proclaiming our unity in one faith, in one baptism, in one hope, that we might have fellowship with the Father and with the Son, and in doing so, that we might have fellowship with one another. Christian, what is your calling today? You are called to loving relationship and unity with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as an overflow of that, you are called to unity amongst the body of which you are a part. This is the calling upon your life and mine.